The psalm from God's word that that song is based upon is found in Psalm 136, and that is the passage of Scripture we'll be studying this morning. This is the last in our series of sermons on a variety of different psalms. As we come to Psalm 136, if you just glance at it, either there in your Bible or in the bulletin, you'll see that it's a relatively unique psalm, the way it's set up. And the way it reads, uh, scholars in general are agreed that it was probably originally intended to be read responsively in call and response. In other words, the priest, probably a priest, would read the first line and either a choir or the whole congregation would read the second part of the line. And so we're going to do it that way. I know that you guys are good at call and response. You know how I know that? We are. See, I told you. You're really good at call and response. I know you can do this. So I'm going to read the first line, and you will read the second line, and it's really easy. Your part is really easy, because once you get it the first time, you got it the whole way through. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his stead... Oh, sorry, that's your part. (laughs) Try that again. You're good at it, I'm not. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. 
He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. I am genuinely hoping that that phrase sticks with you all day long. That that phrase that you've just repeated 26 times sticks with you all week, all month, the rest of your life. This psalm begins and ends with a call to worship. Three times in the beginning of this psalm, it says, give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord. And then it ends in the last verse with give thanks to the God of heaven. Giving thanks doesn't come naturally to us. We aren't born with the ability to genuinely give thanks. We are born with a nature that is inherently unthankful. If you know anything about Philadelphia sports, you know that the fans in Philadelphia are notorious for vigorously booing the players on opposing teams and also their own players when they don't perform up to their expectations. Well, a few days ago, last week, one of the players for the Philadelphia Phillies, their baseball team, Sean Rodriguez, was in his post-game comments after they had lost a disappointing game and he was being interviewed, and he felt he needed to defend a couple of his players, fellow players on his team that had been booed by their, their own fans in Philadelphia, mercilessly. And in the course of defending these two players, he said about the Philadelphia fans, he says, they are entitled. And that was all over the media the next day. The fans, the, the sports writers, everybody was furious that Sean Rodriguez had called the Philadelphia fans entitled. And so the next game, the next day, when Sean Rodriguez came up to bat, they booed him twice as badly as he had, the players that he was defending because he had called them entitled. Well, as I read about that, I wondered, why is that so offensive? Why is that such a huge insult to be called entitled? After all, it's legitimate to say, I'm a citizen of this country, so I'm entitled to certain civil rights. I'm entitled. If I work, I'm entitled to a paycheck. So why is it so offensive to say that a person is entitled? Well, if I were to say to you, you have a sense of entitlement, then you might begin to understand why. Because I think that gets at the thing that the fans found so offensive. If you say somebody has a sense of entitlement, it's likely you're intending to criticize them. It means that they selfishly expect to be given certain rights and privileges without having earned them. Things that they don't deserve. A sense of entitlement. And my guess is that's what Sean Rodriguez meant when he called the fans entitled. It's that they feel that, they selfishly feel that they deserve to have players who play well every night and they deserve to have a team that goes to the playoffs every year. And if they don't get those things, they're going to be angry. They're going to be discontent. They're going to be harsh. They're going to complain. Isn't that the problem with every sinner's heart, though? Aren't we all born with that same sense of entitlement? Not only are we not born thankful, but we're born with a sense of entitlement. In other words, we believe that we are entitled to an easy, comfortable, prosperous, problem-free life. And if we don't get that, then we get angry. 
we get discontent and we complain and become abusive. The scriptures tell us that man in his fallen state, each of us as we were born into this world, are born as unthankful creatures. It says in Romans chapter 1 verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, thankfulness is a gift from God. Thankfulness is an ability of the heart that only comes with having your old heart of stone taken away and being given as a gift from God a new heart, a new disposition, a thankful heart. Following Jesus Christ means, over the course of your lifetime, more and more learning to obey the command that Jeremy read earlier. Where it says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's God's will for your life? That you give thanks in all circumstances. That that become your disposition, your new disposition, because of this new heart that he's given you. How do we feed that new nature? How do we strengthen that new disposition of thankfulness? Well, the psalm starts with some very important theology. Very simple theology, but very important theology in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. God is good. No, you're taught to say that as a simple child, childlike prayer early in your life. God is good. God is great. But that's a powerful statement about God. He is good. In his essence, he is good. There's no darkness in him. He is only good. And that means that everything that God does is good. And so the psalmist says, give thanks. For everything that God does is good. Now, if God were good but limited, if he were somehow not sovereign, if he were limited in his power and authority, then we might have a reason to complain about things. We could complain about things that are outside of God's control, things like hurricanes or sicknesses, if God were limited. But that's why the psalmist goes on to say, give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. He is sovereign. Realize what that's saying. If he's the God of gods, and of course there are no real gods outside of the one true God, but what he's saying is all the so-called gods of the nations, he is Lord over the spiritual realm. He is sovereign over all things spiritual. He is Lord of lords. Every authority in your earthly life, he is Lord of that authority. There is no spiritual being in the spiritual world or in the literal physical world that he is not Lord over. He is sovereign over all things. He does as he pleases. No powers could ever thwart his will. And all things happen according to his will. Have you ever been in a black church, some black churches, if the pastor shouts, God is good, how does the congregation respond? All the time. We need to import that tradition into our middle class white suburban Presbyterian culture here. God is good all the time. Not some of the time. 
Not only in the good times, not only in the easy times, but God is good all the time. It's a powerful theological statement. And that's exactly what this psalm starts with. And then the psalmist goes on to give three areas, three places to focus your attention. If you want to live a thankful life every day, he gives you three things to focus upon, three focuses. I know you're supposed to say foci, but it sounds really weird, so I'm going to say focuses. Three focuses for your life if you want to maintain a daily disposition of thankfulness. The first area, be thankful for God's goodness in creation. Be thankful for God's goodness in creation. Look at verses 4 through 9. In that section, he points to several major wonders of God's creation that we see every day if we'll just take our eyes off of our phones, take our eyes off of our computer monitors, take our eyes off our television screens, and look, we will see evidence of God's goodness in his creation every day. He First of all, he points to the creation of the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. The heavens came first, according to the book of Genesis. God created the heavens And then he created the waters, and out of the waters, he said, let the dry land appear. And that's what that phraseology is referring to. He was spread out the earth above the waters. In other words, the the land was raised up by the word of God out of the waters, and the water and the lands were created. You had the earth in the context of the heavens. It says... That these things, these things were created. The heavens and the earth were, were created by understanding. That's an important little phrase that the psalmist throws in there. These were all created with wisdom and understanding. We look at the creation and we see its intelligent design if our eyes are open to see it. We see God's glory revealed in what he has made. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19, it says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. And then interestingly, over in chapter 8 of Proverbs, that wisdom by which God created the world is personified, as though it were a person. And then in John chapter 1, we are introduced to the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. And it says there in, in John chapter 1, All things were made through Jesus And without him was not anything made that was made. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1. These things were made by a wise and understanding creator. If only we open our eyes to see it. Verses 7 to 9, it says, there it singles out the specific creation of the sun, moon, and stars. And of all the things in creation, nothing displays the glory of God more vividly than the stars, the sun, moon, and stars in the skies. We live in a town with a lot of light pollution, especially on a game, football game weekend. (laughs) You can't see the stars when you look up, but man, you go outside of town, go a few miles outside of town, and, and they're glorious. By wisdom and understanding, God created these heavens, the sun, moon, and stars, I'm reminded of a song by the group Dawes. It's called Telescope, and there's one repeating refrain in that song that says, the stronger the telescope, the more stars there are. 
The stronger the telescope, the more stars there are. And it, I don't know what po point they're really trying to make, but I know what that says to me is that no matter how much we advance in our technology, no matter how big of a telescope or how, how uh, powerful of a telescope we build, it's only going to show us more of God's glory. I mean, do you realize how much more of God's glory we can see in our generation than, than hundreds, thousands of generations before us because we can look into the extenses of the heavens and we can't find the end of it. And it's far more glorious and beautiful than what we can see with our physical eyes. Open your eyes and see the glory of God in what he has made. The same thing is true of inner space. Just as our technology has enabled us to look at things at a microscopic and even subatomic level, all we see is more of God's grandeur displayed. Things that go beyond our comprehension, that cause us to drop to our knees and thank God for what he's made. I read an article a week or so ago, the title of it caught my attention. It said, believe it or not, science can't explain gravity. And it's a good article. It's amazing. You know, we can, science can, one of the most important forces in the universe as far as how we live our daily lives, and science can't explain it at all. It doesn't make any sense to them. They can describe it, what it does, but according to everything else that science knows, they can't explain the force of gravity. How it works, why it works, why, why a force of that really relatively weak power makes this planet work. It's a fascinating article. Look it up. Believe it or not, science cannot explain gravity. I mean, look at your brain. Science can't explain it. Look at your body. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Open your eyes and see God's glory in his creation, and that will inherently show you that God is good and that he is to be thanked. The second area that he deals with is God's work in redemption. Be thankful for God's goodness in redemption. Look at verses 10 through 22. There he recounts the history of God's saving work in the history of Israel. How he led his people from slavery and despair and hopelessness in Egypt to the land flowing with milk and honey in Canaan. Verses 10 to 12 sum up the 10 plagues that God used to bring judgment upon Egypt so that they would let the people of God go. It sums up those 10 plagues by referring to the last most devastating one of them all. When the firstborn of every child of every family and the firstborn of all the livestock were killed in one very dark evening. What this shows is the harsh reality of Scripture is that sometimes the goodness of God to his people entails judgment upon God's enemies. And God's people, as they reflected upon that, they would remember that their firstborn children were saved. Their firstborn children were delivered from the angel of death as it passed over all the households of Egypt when they put the blood of the Passover lamb over the door. And the blood of the Passover, Passover lamb delivered the firstborn of Israel from the penalty of death. That's what the people of God would remember as they reflected upon that night. 
That was the redemption of Israel. When they were redeemed from slavery and delivered into God's presence to be his people. Verses 13 through 15 shows how the Israelites, when they faced certain destruction on the shore of the Red Sea, they were trapped. Pharaoh's mighty army was coming against them. They were about to be obliterated, about to be destroyed. And God, it says literally, cut open the Red Sea. He divided it, separated it, delivered his people through the Red Sea, and then used the waters of the Red Sea to judge the, the armies of Pharaoh and destroy them. You know, these events are continually repeated. You ever notice that? These events of redemptive history, of biblical history, are repeated over and over again, especially in the Old Testament, so that the people of God will not forget, so that they will think often of how God had redeemed them, delivered them from their enemies, called them to himself, delivered them through the blood of a sacrifice to himself and bound himself in covenant to them to be his people. These things are to be remembered by the New Testament church as well, for they were our spiritual forefathers. They were the church of the Old Testament. And all of those events point forward to the work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross for our sins. He was the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He was the perfect Passover lamb that all the, the other Passover lambs pointed to. And he delivered us from our greatest enemies, which are death, the grave, hell, Satan, sin, and all of its effects. Verse 16 recounts God's faithful shepherding of his people through 40 years in the wilderness. How he led them every step of the way, how he protected them, how he provided for their needs. And again, that period of Old Testament history, of redemptive history, that period is a foreshadowing, a reminder to us that we live in the wilderness between our deliverance by the blood of the covenant and our, the fullness of our inheritance when we inherit the new heavens and the new earth. The New Testament draws upon that imagery that we are... God's people being shepherded through the wilderness of this fallen world while he leads us, protects us, and provides for us. And then verses 17 through 22 talks about how God conquered the kings of the nations who came against them and how God conquered the kings and the nations that, it, that inhabited the promised land and how they took possession of their inheritance. And again, this is to remind us, to remember that we have an inheritance. That the, the land flowing with milk and honey of the old covenant pointed forward, it foreshadowed the new heavens and the new earth, which we will inherit by grace. And so these verses, this section of the psalm, this is the storyline of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's what history is all about. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And if you, every day, remind yourself that that's the context of your history, of your life, you're going to live thankfully. You're going to see these truths play out in your life every day, and you're going to live thankfully 
no matter how difficult the path you have to walk. The lesson for us in Psalm 136 that we are not to forget God's faithfulness. Don't forget God's faithfulness to your spiritual forefathers as well as to you. Scripture is always saying to God's people, remember. Remember. Remember your history. Your identity is found in your history, the history of redemption. Remember so that you will be thankful. We live in an age that C.S. Lewis called an age of chronological snobbery. What he meant by that is we think we're so smart. We think we've figured out so much. We've advanced so much in our knowledge over the past century and a half or a couple of centuries that we're so much better than the generations that have come before us. We don't even want to hear about what they learned, what they knew, what they experienced Because what does it matter? We've evolved to such a higher degree than they ever were. It's irrelevant to us. But scripture says, remember. Remember. We should be students of our history. Because when we look at the history of God's dealings with his people, we are driven to our knees in thankfulness. In verses 23 through 25, they speak generally of God's goodness to his people It says there, it is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. He who gives flesh to all, food to all flesh. He's just saying again, God is good all the time. God is good to his people all the time. Be thankful. Give thanks to the Lord. Well, this finally brings us to that statement that you repeated 26 times. There... That phrase, that statement reminds us to thank God for his goodness and his promises. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. If you've been with us through this series of sermons on the Psalms, then you'll know that many times, seems like almost every Psalm, we've had to point out the, the phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord. Steadfast love is that Hebrew word that we keep talking about, kesed. It's a unique word. It's a word that was, in a sense, coined by the writers of Scripture to speak of a specific kind of love, the love of the covenant. The love that belongs to us, the love that is given to God's people because God chose to form a covenant relationship with us. It combines the idea, if you know the New Testament Greek word agape, that's the unique love that the New Testament talks about, which is selfless love, unconditional love, love that is purely for the good of the receiver of that love. You combine that idea with the idea of a covenant, an unbreakable covenant, a vow which cannot be broken, and there you have steadfast love. It's love plus commitment. Love, unconditional love, plus a covenant commitment, covenant loyalty. A love that cannot be lost. A love that cannot be taken away. A love that cannot be broken. That's the steadfast love of the Lord. It's the love that put Jesus Christ on the cross. For the Son of God to take upon a human nature and to bear the penalty that our sins deserved as he hung on the cross in our place. That's steadfast love. That's covenant love. 
It's love that we don't deserve. Love that could only be received as a gift. The gift of righteousness. The gift of being seen as righteous and seen as forgiven in the eyes of God so that God looks at you as one who is righteous in his sight only by grace and then he adopts you as his child. And once he adopts you as his child, then you become an heir of his kingdom. And what is his kingdom? It's the new heavens and the new earth, ultimately. That's its, the, his kingdom in its perfect state. You are an heir of the new heavens and new earth because you've been adopted by grace into God's family. You are sons and daughters of the king. You know what that makes you? Entitled. You are an heir of the new heavens and the new earth. So you are entitled. Entitled by grace. You see, selfish, a selfish sense of entitlement says, I don't, I don't have to do anything for it, but I want it anyway. But entitlement by grace means God chooses you and gives you a gift, and with that gift come all the rights and privileges of the kingdom of God. You did nothing to deserve it, and that doesn't lead you to pride, that leads you to your knees in thankfulness. So these are the three focuses that will give you a thankful day any day of your life. If you focus on the goodness of God in his creation, keep that focus every day and you will live a thankful life. Secondly, focus upon the goodness of God in redemption. Rehearse in your mind what he has done to redeem you from slavery to sin and death every day, and you will live every day thankfully. And finally, focus on the goodness of God in his promises. You are an heir of the kingdom. The new heavens and the new earth belong to you. You will rule under Christ's lordship for eternity. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. I wasn't kidding. I really hope that that phrase will stick with you for a long time, until he comes again or until you go to be with him. His steadfast love endures forever. When my kids were small, they learned a song from a kid's TV show that made my, my, my life miserable for a while. This is how the song went. Some of you have heard this before. This is the song that never ends. I'm not going to sing it. It goes on and on, my friends. Some people started singing it, not knowing what it was, and they'll continue singing it forever just because this is the song that never ends. And then it repeats. Ad nauseum, it repeats. And they drove me nuts with that song. And it annoyed me because it's foolishness, it's nonsense. But give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, his steadfast love, his covenant love endures forever. Let that ring in your mind and your heart every day and learn to live thankfully to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the privilege that we have to sit under its teaching, to have it renew our minds, because we know that as our minds are renewed by the Word of God, our lives are transformed. But Lord, the key step in the middle there is that our hearts must become thankful. 
In order for our hearts to become thankful, we must become humble. We must give up our sense of entitlement. And we must look to you, to your goodness, as it's revealed in creation, as it's revealed in the history of redemption, and as it's revealed in your promises to us. And Lord, as we keep our mind and our heart focused there, Lord, we know that your promise is that our hearts will become thankful. And there is no better way to live than to live, thankfully, to the one God, one true God of the universe. Thank you for your patience in teaching us. We wait upon you in Christ's name. Amen.